Despite being the richest country in the world, America is not so great at saving. In fact, we rank 15th out of 34 by the OECD on percentage of disposable income saved. We are surpassed by nations like Norway, Mexico, Estonia, and Chile. More than two-thirds of Americans believe the economic recession is going to get worse before it gets better, and yet 56% of Americans would be unable to cover an unexpected $1,000 bill with cash on hand. For Egypt, it was time to start saving. It's time for Americans to start saving too, by the way, but it was definitely time for Egypt to start saving in our text. They were about to experience the best of times followed by the worst of times. Joseph's prediction was coming true. Uh, when he, what he predicted wasn't just a neat parlor trick by a court magician. We kind of see that in the book of Exodus with Janus and Jambres. They're able to do some pretty neat little tricks, but unable to... Uh, really accomplish anything when it counts. Uh, But not Joseph. This was not just a a trick. It wasn't just an illusion. This was a life and death situation for multiplied thousands and thousands of people. And Joseph not only sounded the alarm, he also accomplished the rescue. His rags-to-riches story proves that our God can do whatever He wants to do. And what He wants to do is save lives. That's what God is about. These verses are full of, a, of an abundant lifefulness uh, for Egypt and for the surrounding nations and for Joseph himself. I know that's not a word, but it fits really well with, with what we read tonight. God is all about life. He's all about saving. He's all about helping. He's all about growth. He's all about bringing people back from the brink of death. When we left off, Joseph had been suddenly installed as prime minister over Egypt Researchers tell us that he would have had several titles in the government. Uh, One of them was chief steward of the Lord of the two lands. Another would be royal seal bearer. He had total authority and he had total responsibility for the future of this nation. Their lives were in his hands. Mark Twain is quoted often as saying, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Uh, you know, he, he received this interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. He received a plan from the Lord for how, you know, people could be saved and, and withstand the famine, and he started work immediately. Verse 46 is where we pick up, and we read, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. So Joseph was 17 when he was trafficked by his brothers. By the time the seven years of plenty were over, he would have lived longer in Egypt than he had lived in the promised land in his father's house. And he shows a remarkable compassion for the people around him. Remember, they had enslaved him. They had unjustly imprisoned him. They had forgotten him. They had treated him as other, as the Hebrew set apart. And now he's in this incredible position. Now he has the power to either help them or to hurt them. He could have been like Galen Erso for you Star Wars fans. Remember in Rogue One, Galen Erso spent years quietly serving the Empire all the while he was setting a trap that would lead to the Death Star's explosion, right? He laid all the groundwork so that it could all come crumbling down. And, and really, Joseph could have done that if he wanted to. 
He could have let Egypt starve and said, these pagans had it coming. Look at what they've done to, uh, to me and look at how they treat the Lord and look at how they follow after their own gods of their own making. And so I'm going to pretend that I'm going to help them, but in fact, I'm not going to help them at all. Instead of doing that, he dedicated the next 14 years of his life to saving as many lives as he possibly could. And ultimately, he would remain in this position for 80 years. He would serve as, a, as, as prime minister, as a public servant for 80 years of his life. At the same time, we'll find that he never considers himself fully Egyptian. He's happy to live in Egypt. He has no intention at this point of going back to Canaan but he never considers himself fully Egyptian. He remains true to the God of his fathers. And when we get to listen in on his thoughts, they're about the Lord's goodness and the Lord's faithfulness. They're about his relationship with the Lord and his love for the Lord. As prime minister, we see in this verse verse that Joseph didn't play favorites. He went through the entire land, not just the coast land, not just the nice land. He went through the entire land. He didn't care about one city more than another. Every city would need the same kind of help once the famine hit, whether that area was rich or poor, urban or rural, cosmopolitan or backwoods, right? It was fair across the board. And, I, you know, there's a sort of a devotional principle, I think, here when it comes to how we think about church planting. That's something that gets talked about uh, you know, in the Christian world, church planting and how you should do that and where you should do it, that sort of thing. Often you will heal, hear people say, or if you read uh, articles about church planting, you'll hear people argue that we need to plant churches in major cities. That's the most important thing to do. Or they'll say, well, this specific geographic region is the most unchurched region in the state or in the, in the area. Uh, there's also the curious trend, of course, where churches happen to always get planted in places where there's lots of money. Uh, there's never a shortage of church plants in Orange County or San Diego, uh, we have found. Uh, the reality is every place needs the bread of life, right? Every place in Egypt was going to need help and need grain and need uh, Joseph's intervention, right? Every place around the world, around our state, around our county, around wherever, every place needs Jesus. Every town, city, or hamlet needs a Bible-teaching, gospel-preaching church. And so, as we as Christians think about planting churches or, or starting up new works, it's not strategy that we need. You don't need strategy. You need the superintendence of God, the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is going to guide us where to go. And the reason is because God has a plan. God wants to save people everywhere. And the fact of the matter is God does not prefer Orange County to Orange Cove, right? I don't see people lining up to plant a church up in Orange Cove. Uh, should they? Shouldn't they? I don't know. That's the Lord's business. He doesn't prefer Orange Cove to Orange County either, but we think so strategically, and unfortunately, we end up thinking with biases, and we end up thinking, where's more important? But the Lord doesn't look at you and say, you're less important than someone with this position, this bank account, this socioeconomic status. He doesn't do that. He loves people all the same, and we see that sort of reflected in the way that Joseph carried himself here. Verse 47 says, during the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvests. This simple one-sentence report is 
uh, quite the understatement, really. Joseph's plan, we were told in the last passage, was to take 20% off the top of each crop's harvest for the next seven years of abundance and to save it, right? That percentage, relatively small, would end up being enough food to feed the entire nation and all the nations around it for more than seven years. This is a huge overabundance of food and grain. In fact, there was so much saved, we will see that they just stopped counting after a while. Now, if you're being tasked with save enough grain so that we don't die, and you say, you know what, we don't even need to count anymore, right? That's a lot of extra, right? Because you don't want to get to year five of the famine and say, oh, maybe we should have kept counting. Uh, Maybe we didn't have as much as we want. But the, the idea is there was so much coming in that after a point, he said, you know, we can't even count it anymore, and we don't even need to count it anymore. And that wasn't because they were saving 95% of the crop or saving 50% of the crop. They were saving one-fifth of the crops that came in year after year. The land produced because the Lord provided. As always, the Bible highlights the immeasurable grace of God. When we see here that the grain was uh, outstanding and that it was overabundant and that they stopped measuring it for just on a devotional level, replace that, that word grain with grace. The grace of God, it is just immeasurable, poured out from heaven on undeserving sinners. These were pagan idolaters. These were sinful people. These were people who ignored God and and looked into the heavens and didn't think this was made by a creator, but thought, well, there's a God of the Nile and a God of the moon and the God of the cows and the God of the frogs, and I'm Pharaoh, I'm a God, and all these sorts of things. But God loved them, and He wanted them to live and not die. And so He provided so that the land could produce. God provides so much for humanity out of His immeasurable grace, and it's, it's downright impossible for us not to take it for granted. He doesn't have to do any of it. God doesn't owe us anything, but He loves us, and He's a God of grace and mercy and compassion, a God of tender kindness, a God who looks down on all the people of the earth, and He says, you know what? The rain's going to fall on the just and the unjust. I'm going to supply for you what you need in hopes that you will reach out to me. I'm reaching out to you. I hope that you will reach back out to me so that you can be saved, so that you can live and not die. When we think about some of what God has provided just at a very basic level, consider this. Right now, mankind produces enough food to feed billions more people than are alive on planet Earth. Uh, It's something like 1.5 times as much food as we need is, is what we already produce. Think about it this way. There's not just one grove of tree, fruit trees somewhere that that's where all the food comes from. Or for human being, God created us in a very particular way. We're not like the koala bear. Koala bear, all they eat is eucalyptus, right? And if you don't have eucalyptus, you don't have koala bears, right? Because it's a problem. That's all they eat. And the Lord said, you know what? The human beings are going to be able to eat fruit, and they're going to be able to eat vegetables, and they're going to be able to eat out of the oceans, and they're going to be able to eat animals from the field, and they're going to be able to grow grain out of the ground, and they're going to be able to figure out what potatoes are, and they're going to be able to figure out all this stuff, and I'm going to supply all kinds of abundance so that human beings can live and not die. Or consider how much water the Lord has provided, water that most 
most basic necessity that we have as living organisms. By one estimate, the average American might use 1.8 million gallons of water in their life, all told. You know, laundry and watering your grass and drinking and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how they figure this out, but they, they think they have. So 1.8 million gallons of water in America per person in your lifetime. If you take just the groundwater that we know about, no desalinization, no rivers or lakes or glaciers, just groundwater, 45% of groundwater is fresh and 55% of it is salt. I didn't know that, but I learned that. But let's take that 45% of groundwater. Based off of what we know, there's 119 million gallons of groundwater for every person on the earth, right? So in the sense in America, you in 85 years or so are going to need uh, 1.8 million gallons of water in your life. And the Lord says, yeah, in the groundwater, there's going to be 120 million available to you. And now don't get me wrong. Obviously, there are a lot of hungry people out there. There are a lot of people who don't have access to clean water. But the reasons aren't, one, aren't, aren't because of supply, right? It's not a scarcity of what God has provided. It ends up being one of sin, right? human corruption, uh, waste, selfishness, those sorts of things are the problems that lead to people not being able to access clean water. Uh, It's not that God didn't supply enough out of His grace. God prepared the earth so that mankind could thrive and grow and develop and discover. In His grace, He gifts us these things in addition to so many other things that He gives. And one thing that He gives is nearly an unlimited supply of human ingenuity, the things that human beings are able to figure out and accomplish and build and develop, it's all the grace of God. I mean, really, can you imagine being able to talk to Abraham or Joseph in their time about space travel or quantum computing or 3D printing or all the other things that we're just like, oh, yeah, we do that now. I have this thing here, and it can talk to anyone in the whole world live in real time. You want to see it? Uh, I can show you a video of a cat of my friend who lives in Colombia. Do you want to see that? No? Oh, okay. But, you know, these things that, this is all because God gave us uh, uh, intellect and ingenuity and allows human beings to discover things and, and develop this world that he's given us. This week, the big news was that there's been some sort of big breakthrough in the field of nuclear fusion, and they're saying, hey, we're, we're, we're pretty close to limitless clean energy, right? And, and someday, if the Lord tarries, human beings will figure that out. Be like, oh, yeah, it's my, my pocket nuclear fusion reactor. It's fine. I just have it, and it, you know, powers the entire state. That capacity for understanding and development and discovery, it's all thanks to the outstanding grace of God. It's because God allows it and because God says, yes, I want people to live and not die. I want them to be blessed. I want them to to have these helps, and so I will allow human beings to accomplish these things. And he gives it because he's a God of life, and he's a God who is generous, and he's extravagantly generous and loving towards us in his desire that we live and not die. Verse 48 says, Joseph gathered all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. He put the food in every city from the fields around it. So there wouldn't just be one central location. Everybody wouldn't have to cart to Cairo and then go out from there. Joseph's plan was to to decentralize things. It was more complex, but in the end, more efficient, right? In each place, there would, you know, each locale, there'd be somewhere where that community could go to receive the grain. Of course, each of these storehouses would have to have a staff of people. 
and those people would need to be on board with the program and what they were trying to do. They would need to understand the importance. They would need to understand what they were doing. They weren't just busy workers. They weren't just pushing pencils. This was including people in a very serious, very important life-saving effort. Put it this way, Joseph's plan could not afford leaky buildings, right? They couldn't afford to have administrators or staff there who could be bribed to let people steal the grain in the early years, or workers who would allow infestations of rodents or bugs into the vaults, right? That, that would really matter. It's not so easy to store food that needs to be eaten 14 years from now. Uh, you know, I'm sure some of you have stores of food for, you know, disaster and those sorts of things. It actually takes a significant amount of administration and watching and taking care. And we're talking about a time with no refrigeration, uh, a time with no drywall. We're talking about Egypt, ancient Egypt, where they had to maintain and watch and look for rats and clear them out and get rid of whatever the crazy scarab beetles wanted to do, right? Those Egypt, uh, from what I've learned from movies like The Mummy, Egypt's just full of scarab beetles. Everywhere you look, there's scarab beetles. They want to eat all the stuff. And so, but Joseph couldn't do all of that by himself. He would need to employ all these people, and these people would all have to be on board, and they would have to be individuals full of integrity and good character and, and, and hard work ethic, right? Because if not, a bunch of people are going to die. Now, one thing that spoke to me about this is that ideas are important, right? Joseph had the idea, and that was important. That's how you got things started. But execution is just as important. Without proper execution, without faithful execution, the idea really doesn't matter. It starts as a good idea and then dies a horrible death. Sometimes a church gets an idea about something they want to do in their community, and they get all excited about it, but then no one... Sometimes people don't want to talk about the execution. Okay, who's going to do that? How is it going to be done? We need to have enough godly wisdom to look at an idea and say, great, we want to be on board, so how is that going to be done? Let's look down the road and see what sort of challenges might present themselves or consider how this idea is going to work itself out and what it will require and each step along the way. And so we don't want to be the kind of people that always get excited about ideas and then hope someone else takes care of the execution. We need to work together um, as God's people to accomplish the things that he's setting us out to do. Verse 49 says, so Joseph stored up grain in such abundance, like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. Again, we see the grace of God. Joseph gathered what God gave The grain was in such abundance that it was beyond measure. And we'll learn that part of God's motivation for all of this was so that the family of faith, Jacob and his sons and their families, would move to Egypt and that they would survive the famine. But it wasn't just Jacob's family that God was thinking about. He didn't give just enough grain for them. He gave enough grain for the whole world to come and be fed. He wanted everyone to have a chance to live. In verse 49, we read that phrase, like the sand of the sea, and we're reminded of that phrase in the Abrahamic covenant. That's something that God had spoken to Abraham and to Jacob about, about what he wanted to do in and through their lives. God told Abraham, he said, I want you to live and to thrive and to become more fruitful than you could possibly imagine. And he said, I want the nations of the earth to be blessed through you. 
And Joseph's work in Egypt was one of the many ways that the Lord was accomplishing what He promised. He says, I want to bless all the nations of the world, and here's one of those ways. I'm going to use one of your sons to save countless lives, and he's going to, he's going to receive all of this grain that I send to the fields of Egypt and store it up and watch over it so that everyone can live and not die. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, God strengthens His people and appoints us to ministry, and that His grace abundantly overflows to us beyond measure. He does this because His desire is to save lives, and He uses us to demonstrate His mercy and His patience and His love so that people will see and believe and live and not die. His grace is beyond measure, and it is stored up for the people of the earth. He stores it up and makes it available. He makes it available through your life so that those spiritually starving and doomed people can come to the Lord and receive grace and receive the salvation that they need and have all of those spiritual needs met by what He supplies. Verse 50 says, two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest at On, bore them to him. Joseph had a really important job, a really busy job, not just from the human perspective, but also, frankly, in the plan of providence, he had a very singular, important job. He would be incredibly busy for 14 years, making sure the global food supply chain didn't collapse. We hear in the news a lot about the supply chains are collapsing, the supply chains, right? And, and, and how all of that is tenuous and because the port at Long Beach and then this is happening with the trucks and then the train, all this stuff is all very complex, right? And, and everybody's real nervous about the supply chain. Okay, now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're the one guy in charge of, of all of that. You're in charge of the global food supply chain for the next 14 years, have a nice day, right? That's a pretty busy job, if you ask me. Uh, but God was not only doing things through Joseph's professional life. We see here he also is working and helping Joseph to thrive in his personal life too. I saw an article on NBC News the other day titled, Science Proves Kids Are Bad for the Earth, Morality Suggests We Stop Having Them. And like, I didn't read it because, give me a break, but I did, I did scroll through it and like every few paragraphs, they just have a picture of like a, a, a delightful, cute little baby. And like, I'm like, man, what, what's happening? Why, why are, you're putting all these like pictures of cute, adorable babies and talking about how I guess you wish they were all dead and that's really what would be good, you know? But anyway, so the truth is, it, it, a lot of times even young Christians have this honest question. They say, should I bring children into such a terrible world? If we think that, you know, we're in the end times and this, that, and the other thing, or if persecution is coming or whatever, should we, you know, be having children and bringing them in to a terrible world? For Christians, the answer is this. You should have kids if the Lord leads you to have kids. That's the deal, Right? The, the fact of the matter is the world has always been bad, and God has always been good. And God is always delighted to do wonderful things through family for those individuals that He sets apart to have families. And, you know, looking down the barrel of a global famine that was going to be historic and change the world, uh, the Lord said, yeah, Joseph, you, you, you're going to have two sons. All in, the, all in, the, in the, the mess of this and all in the, the gnarliness of this, you're also going to have a thriving, growing, cultivated, spiritual family. 
as you and your wife bring a couple of sons into this world. And biblically speaking, you know, it's a big deal that Joseph accomplished all of this as prime minister and, and saves Egypt and brings his brothers and family down and all of that. Not making light of that at all, but biblically speaking, his raising of two sons who would become tribes of Israel has a longer and more significant impact than his professional work as prime minister, right? If you know Old Testament history or Old Testament books at all, you know there's no tribe of Joseph. There's the tribe of his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so, as far as the impact of Joseph's life, it's his personal life, it's his family life that is going to be the thing that has a greater volume of impact than his time as prime minister. Being a faithful dad wouldn't be easy. We're reminded that Joseph was married into a profoundly pagan family. There would be a lot of very bad influences seeking to siphon off his sons. Uh, even though he's prime minister, like Daniel, he was undoubtedly roped into a lot of ceremonies and uh, just things that the king wanted him to do, right? And this is a hard line for him to walk and figure out, okay, how do I do this as a faithful believer in Jehovah, but also I'm effectively you know, in the, under the control of Pharaoh. And so it would be a hard thing for him to be a faithful, godly dad. But so how would he, Joseph, approach this new phase of life? Would he embrace the, the Egyptian life or would he do something different? Well, let's look at verse 51. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so Joseph uh, doesn't step toward e Egypt more. He steps and embraces his, the God of his fathers, Jehovah, Elohim, right? He goes that way. And he, we see he's leading his family with purpose. Uh, in Genesis, it's been common for the mothers to name the kids. That's what we've seen many times over, uh, starting all the way back with Eve and all, running all the way through Joseph's uh, uh, mom and, and the, the other ladies in the family. But in this case, Joseph says, hold up, uh, I'm going to take charge here and I'm going to make sure that these boys that are born to, to me are going to be Hebrew boys in the midst of all of this Egypt. And he's making a big stand here. His whole life was lived among the Egyptian aristocracy. Uh, the names Ephraim and Manasseh would be a, quite a statement of devotion and separation to the God of Abraham, not of Egypt, right? He was not assimilating. He was not becoming more Egyptian. In fact, he was drawing a hard line and saying, these are my sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Oh, you've never heard that before? That's because I'm not Egyptian. I'm Hebrew, and the God of the Hebrews is who I've dedicated my life to. So a big statement here. We're also given the impression that Joseph was a loving and godly father. Both of these names praise the Lord for his goodness and his faithfulness. He looked down at Manasseh, and he essentially says, man, little man, I love you so much. I don't even remember the 13 years of slavery and imprisonment that I went through. That's a lot of love, right? <laughs> That's pretty tender. His words radiate affection toward his boys and toward his God. Did God want Joseph to forget his family? He says, oh, God's made me forget my family, speaking about his dad and his brothers. Did God want him to forget uh, well, we know as readers that God sent Joseph ahead to Egypt in order to save his father's family. We know the reconciliation is coming. 
But his family had been a hardship to him, a pretty, pretty, pretty bad hardship. I, as far as I know, my family hasn't trafficked me into slavery before, uh, and this guy, that's exactly what happened to him. But even still, God's desire was that Joseph help them and intercede for them and act as a savior to them. And it seems like Joseph hasn't really figured that out yet. I mean, he knows that a very serious famine is coming, and yet, as one scholar notes, he makes no attempt to notify or contact his family. He has all kinds of power now, all kinds of wealth. He can do whatever he wants to do, and he does not send them a carrier pigeon or a letter or a servant to say, by the way, store some food. Uh, he, he, he effectively thinks, all right, I'm, I'm done with my family. And what that tells us is that Joseph still had some growing to do. But that's true of all of us. That's so great. I mean, Joseph went through a lot. He's, he's spiritually mature in some really wonderful ways, but he still had growing to do, and so do, so do we. In his story, we see growth in heart and growth in home and growth in his work and in his relationships, growth in his walk with the Lord. And it's a reminder that God continues developing us and shaping us day by day by day. He wants to keep finishing the work that he started. We're not done yet. We're not done until the end when we're glorified in heaven. All along the way, He's going to keep working, keep shaping, keep conforming, keep growing us. And so it's okay for us to recognize that, okay, I'm still growing. That's not a pass for us to be bums, spiritually speaking, but to just remember that, all right, the Lord's still working in me. The Lord's still developing me. Joseph said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I love his perspective. He wasn't defined by his previous suffering. He wasn't defined by his affliction. He wasn't defined by adversity or his new powerful position. He wasn't defined by any of his circumstances. He was defined by God's lifefulness. God wants to make you and me fruitful in whatever land we find ourselves in. Jesus said, I've appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. And I love in the book of Jeremiah, we're told that the person who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by water, unafraid of heat, evergreen, and one that produces fruit even during a drought. And so it's not about your circumstances. It's not about if things are bad or good. It's about the Lord bearing fruit for us, fruit that remains as just as life is born through us because of God's grace. Verse 53 says, then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. Just as Joseph had said, there was famine in every land, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When that first year of shortages came, it hit like a freight train. That word famine is used six times in four verses with descriptors like stricken and severe. Every land had the same problem, but only one solution could be found, and that was found in Egypt. There wasn't anywhere else to go. Luckily, God had sent salvation through one man who suffered and served so that even those who wronged him had the chance to be rescued. If the hungry would simply believe and humble themselves and come to Joseph, they would live and not die. Verse 55, when the whole land of Egypt was stricken with famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told all Egypt, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. And so now Joseph is effectively ruling over all Egypt and, in a sense, by extension, the nations of the world because everything came under this need for food. Nothing else mattered, just that everyone was starving. And so Joseph's in charge of it all. All were at his mercy. But he was willing to receive anyone who would come. He gave grain to friends and gave grain to strangers. If you came, you got grain. 
And there's a lovely lesson here for us. In your moment of need, in your hurt, in your lack, go to Jesus and do whatever he tells you. His court is open. His grace and mercy and love have been stored up for you. Just go to him and obey him. And don't miss out on what he wants to do in your life. Verse 56, now the famine had spread across the whole region. So Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Seems a little bit scroogey at first that Joseph sold the grain instead of giving it to these hungry people. But selling it would accomplish several important goals. First, it would keep people from hoarding too much too soon. Uh, This was the only supply they had, and they couldn't afford to run out in year one or two, right? Think about it this way. When COVID lockdowns first happened, there was no toilet paper in the stores, right? That's a problem. If the government had said, come to this distribution center and take as much as you want for free, what's going to happen? It's all gone in an hour, right? It's just all gone. And then they say, well, we don't have any more. If they would have said, okay, you're going to come and have to buy toilet paper. You're going to get a big pack, but it's going to be like two bucks a pack. It controls the flow. And Joseph would also have to distribute grain to other nations as well. And by charging a fee and setting that price, he'd be able to control the price so that profiteers couldn't sort of sweep in and take the grain and gouge everyone else ticketmaster style, right? He's trying to avoid that. But there's a theological application here as well. Joseph's work in Egypt, of course, whispers to us of Christ's work of salvation. He has done all the work. He has laid up all the stores that we need. And now he says to us this, come everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Well, how do we buy without silver and without cost? We pay with our hearts. We pay with our lives. We give ourselves to the one who saves us. We abandon our way, Isaiah says, and return to the Lord and embrace his word and the life that he wants to give us, one full of joy and provision and growth. We buy what he offers, and instead of the thorn bush, we're told a cypress tree will come up. We trade our starvation for his everlasting covenant. So we see a great picture of that here. Verse 57, every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land. The inhabitants of these nations had nowhere else to go, but God had made a way for them to live if they were willing. There was enough for anyone and everyone. And in a few verses, we'll find that word got out quick. God wants to save today just as much as he did in Genesis 41. He cares about hunger and hurts and the people around us who are about to die forever. He cares about filling your life with his life in your work, in your family, in your relationships, and in your walk with him. God is all about lifefulness. Be led by him. Be cultivated by him. Bear the fruit he has appointed you to by embracing his word and listening for his spirit and dedicating yourself to serving him. Remember, Joseph was a steward of the Lord and a seal bearer in Egypt. And you know, those are our titles to the Lord as well, stewards to our Lord. And we bear the seal of His grace and the seal of His salvation. As God goes on saving and filling us, we can go through the land and be a part of His effort to save everyone else.